Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, wherever you are today. Welcome to the Thought Leader's Voice. I'm Rachel Kinsella, Editor-in-Chief at iResearch Services, and your host today. We're delighted to be joined for today's episode, A Seismic Shift to Unify B2B Marketing and Sales, by Jenna Pipchuk. Jenna is Chief Sales Officer and Executive Vice President at Smart Technologies, a provider of hardware and software solutions to educators worldwide. Jenna joined Smart in 2007 and has over 20 years of experience in technology. She began her career in product management and has helped many successful products to market for Smart. Jen is known for her transparent leadership, finely honed hiring skills, and for building great teams. For those of you who don't know, Jenna as head of sales and Jeff Lowe, head of marketing, forged a completely different path for Smart during the pandemic. Capitalizing on the shift to digitally dominant B2B buy behavior, the team completely dismantled traditional sales, marketing, success, and service teams, bringing them together and restructuring into what Smart calls a unified commercial engine, challenging the unchallenged. Hello and welcome, Jenna. Great to have you here with us today. Thanks so much, Rachel. It's super exciting to be here today. Thank you for joining us. So we'll get straight into the into the questions, if I may. I'm sure our audience is really keen to hear more about the unified commercial engine. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the main driving force was behind the model for you and your team to take this massive step and what results this restructure has driven for SMART? Yeah, the unified commercial engine is really dropping the kind of traditional sales and marketing departmental structures, if you will, and looking at the entire customer journey from a new lens and really reorganizing our company around the customer. I know everybody kind of talks about centering around the customer and we said, let's toss everything aside and figure out what would it be like if we actually built our organization around the customer's experience and all the touch points it has with our organization. And that was the one of the main driving forces. Really what we know is the data is showing that more and more of our buyers prefer to buy digitally. I think it's something like an astounding amount of over 60% would actually prefer not to interact with a salesperson when making a purchasing decision, even in very complex purchasing decisions. And so we knew that our market was changing and we really had a hard look at ourselves to say, well, how are we going to change to better meet our customers' needs? And then there was a secondary one, which I don't think is too important for others, but for us, we were having um, issues with departmental silos and one thing that we were just not fixing. And so a secondary or, or minor point of the driving force was how do we get more connected between our departments? Because we were continually to have a, a culture of silo departments, which I think many organizations experience. Absolutely. I would argue that that's an equal challenge to driving your organization around a customer. We hear it time and time again from clients and um, from their end clients, the difficulties that organizations are having with silos across the company and particularly between different departments like sales and marketing and customer success. So that must have been a significant driver, I would have thought. Yeah, it, it absolutely was. And, and the results have been phenomenal. So we're two years in now. And we can talk with a lot more confidence about what we've uh, developed here because we've doubled our leads year over year in every category. We've uh, increased our employee engagement to a, a really good level, and we've increased our sales significantly by about 40% in two years. So those three things combined has given us a lot of confidence that says, yeah, this idea of completely dismantling sales and marketing and really unifying your whole commercial process can really be a great driver for any organization. Wow, fantastic. 
the proof is in the pudding. You took the leap uh, and it's paid off in quite a short space of time across the past two years. Yeah, 100%. And I think we're interested into how much more we can drive this and how much more we can help buyer groups with digital purchasing. Brilliant. Of course, I think we're all quite acutely aware now that the B2B sales and marketing landscape has shifted dramatically with various different factors like the pandemic. But as you say, that drive to digital buyer behavior, those stats that you mentioned are are really quite astounding, particularly even in complex purchases, the requirement and the, the desire to conduct all of that online without any face-to-face or sort of in-person in intervention is quite dramatic. Obviously, you've identified and tapped into these changing B2B buyer behaviours to meet the customer where they are and, and where they, they want to be met. Um, could you talk us through some of the steps that you've taken to arrive at this restructured model, how you've facilitated it, and also perhaps the different phases that you went through during that process? Yeah, for sure. So it's been a, a long journey. So about six months before we even implemented the Unified Commercial Engine, we started to look at what we needed to do to restructure. And so what do our customers experience? What is their journey? What are all their touch points? Um, and how could we drive a better digital experience and interweave the, the human touch points as well? I don't want anybody to think that we're all digital because I don't think all digital works either. And, and so we went through and we went through the customer journeys and that's really where we started is mapping all of our customer journeys and seeing what it did. And we ended up with a fairly standard infinity loop, the standard customer infinity loop where they are out of market and then they start to identify a problem and then they start to identify solutions and go through a buy process and uh, then a support process and then start the loop all over. So that is very standard. But once we said, okay, so this is what our customers experience. Let's group it by the different types of things that they experience. So whether they're learning about solutions, whether they're purchasing solutions or whether they're adopting or being supported by their solution, those are all fairly traditional. So we, we mapped those out. But some of the things that were quite unique is we pulled out a lot of centralized things like our operations, our, our systems and processes. Normally you would have a MarTech stack, you would have a sales op stack, you would have you know, your financial stack. And what we did is we pulled that whole group and said, well, you support throughout the entire customer journey. So you're going to be a group together that supports the entire infinity loop. And we did the same with our content. And we did the same with kind of our product uh, marketing group because they were at every different stage. And so we combined those groups, had some efficiencies in there and say, you must support the entire journey. And then what else we did is we matrixed the infinity loop into what for us was geographic regions. In a couple of instances, it's a segment. And that's actually the secret sauce is it's a matrixed organization where their everyday team is more of the indirect. So the entire customer journey from brand uh, intent all the way through to customer support, that is in a geographic or what, what is we call a sales pod uh, or for us, it's the commercial engine pod. And that's their everyday team is dealing with the entire customer process. Then, then they're matrixed in through direct reporting lines into like for like. So all our demand gen people are together, all our inside sales reps are together, that sort of stuff. And not knowing that that would become our secret sauce is the pod itself, that your everyday group is the entire customer journey. That's what's really made this thing. Wow. That's a really impressive model and a really fascinating way of looking at it, actually. 
and you could make sense why it would work because you're you're supporting that customer journey from all sides using all the technologies that are at your disposal but also those different skill sets and and those everyday teams as you say that that's that's their everyday day work and area of focus but it's actually spanning that that whole customer journey that's amazing yeah yeah, it's the broadening of people's understandings of our customer that has actually made the difference. And yeah, we'll talk more about it, but it's become such a key component now of our engagement because people really understand the full journey and their part in it. Their purpose is made clear. Their motivation is really there because they understand their impact to the customers much more than they did when they were kind of in their isolated departments. How did you go about creating that view of the customer and creating that better understanding of the customer needs? Was it through that mapping process that you mentioned, or was it bespoke training around the different areas? How did it work? Yeah, we did what we called a circles and squares exercise. And so we built the entire org without putting any thought into the people. We really just focused on what does the customer need at each point? What would that job look like? What were the exact skills needed for that job? And what would they be providing to the customer? So those were our squares. And so every square, a touch point with a customer, every job required to help a customer was defined with a skill set and what it needed to do. Then we took all of our people, which was about 260 of them, and we did a, a similar exercise with our circles, which is who are these people? What are their skill sets? What is their ability to learn? What is their interest level? And then we started to match circles to squares. And so we took anywhere where there was a circle with either the right skill set or a trainable skill set and an interest level into the right square. And then we did end up at the end with a few circles who were amazing people who just didn't have the skill set that we were looking for for the future of our business. And we had a few squares of just skill sets we didn't have in our current employee base. And so that was a huge restructuring episode. But we still do it to this day on a much smaller one. So now when we say we're going to do a circles and squares, it's less about putting people into spots and much more about what spots do we need in the future and what skills do we need? And then who do we need to train to have those future skills? And that is a win-win for both the company and the employee because we really are skilling our people up for the future of sales and marketing. And we're skilling our company up at the same time, which is a, a lovely place to be. Absolutely. Actually, that brings me really nicely onto one of my next questions, which is you know, how that was scalable and how you can be planning for the future growth using that same model. And, and you've answered that question by obviously showing that you're using the squares and circles approach. It does sound like, dare I say, infinitely scalable across your business. Yeah, it helps change a mindset too, because I think some people maybe forget when they're doing their planning is there's a traditional mindset that, you know, your career development includes more responsibility. And then at some point you must manage people and then you must manage more and more people to go up the ladder. And what we're really encouraging is saying, hey, sales is changing. It's just an, a, a market that has a tremendous growth with data and with inside sales and where things are going. And we're encouraging them to also look at less about this kind of traditional career path and more about what skills do you want in the future? What skills make you more marketable? What skills make you able to do that? And that might have a completely different career path than they might be thinking. And we think that sets them up better for the future, both at our company or for other companies, if that's where their career path goes, just because that's not the only way to get there. And that's not what companies need in the future for sales and marketing. Absolutely. And it's about the evolution of the industry, of the role, but also the individual. And it's the, the future proofing 
aspects of that individual's development uh, as well as the role itself. So the two obviously are so closely interconnected to be able to map that out in a different way to the traditional, probably quite defunct now, the traditional career path, thinking that you're only scaling the, the ladder one way, but actually you're mapping it to the evolution of the industry and, and the marketplace and ways of reaching your your end consumers, which are incredibly innovative approach, but also it, it's sensible, it, it, it makes sense. Do you think that because it, it's taken into consideration the skills and the, the capabilities of the individual alongside the roles uh, and what's required from a customer perspective, do you think that has actually helped improve employee satisfaction? What did you find when you were measuring that pre and post restructure? Yeah, the uh, employee engagement was one of the more pleasant uh, results for us. We had um, fairly high engagement scores uh, going into this. So kind of pre-COVID and even the first year after COVID, everybody kind of got a lift in in engagement scores. And we were in the top 25% of tech companies for our engagement scores by a third-party measurement. After the UCE, we've actually now moved into the top 10% of any company in any segment. And a lot of that, I think, has to do because with the broadening knowledge, the understanding of their purpose and actually being able to see the results of their activities to the overall, I think that is one of the highest reasons to get our engagement. The other thing is the matrix model that we have requires a lot of collaboration. So in the beginning, we used to hire for collaborative skills. We've now gotten to a point where the culture itself lends itself to it. So a good example is in a traditional kind of way, if you have a line of the customer journey, you would put in breaks that said, well, this person's responsible for point A to point B, and then there's a handoff and the next person's responsible for point B to point C. We took off those hard breaks and we said, no, both people are responsible to A to C. We draw a diagonal line and it says, you know, the person on the left, they'll be mostly responsible for point A through C. And a little bit halfway point, they're equally responsible. And at the other end, they're probably less responsible. And then the person who traditionally would be B to C, well, we say, no, you have the whole A to C. You're just not very responsible for A. You're about equally responsible when it gets to point B. And you're almost fully responsible at point C. And what that means is you take a broader look at what has to happen for that customer. And you share a little bit of the responsibility. So there's no kind of hard point handoff that says, I've done my job. You go there's an equal responsibility. And so what that means is they have to have a collaborative kind of mindset. They have to be able to work with others to negotiate through how to have the best customer experience through that time frame. When I talk to my staff about what is the one thing you know today that you're finding different because of the UC, and they said, actually, it's when we bring in new people, we have to spend a little bit more time helping them understand this collaborative nature. We call it embrace the gray, meaning it's not a very clearly defined difference. You have to work together for the betterment of the customer. And so we take a little bit longer onboarding new people to understand this embrace the gray or collaborative mindset, but it's self-fulfilling. And it and is part of why they're so engaged because they feel like they have a purpose. They feel like they're making a difference and they're collaborating really for the good of the customer. That's fantastic. And I think you can see how that would improve engagement. But as you say, working in traditional silos and kind of beavering away, very busy doing your thing or what you deem to be your thing, it doesn't foster collaboration. It doesn't foster that transparency in the, the communication that's for the good of the customer. 
And you don't see that bigger picture. As you say, you don't see your direct contribution to the commercial success, to winning the customer, to keeping them engaged, to making their life better. So by opening it up, automatically encourages collaboration. I like the way you say that it's kind of woven it into the fabric of the organization rather than having to hire for those specific collaborative mindsets and skills. It's actually part of the job and it becomes that natural flow in terms of the workload. You've not got a sort of off a cliff handoff point. You're actually working together throughout different stages, but you still have ownership and you still have purpose because you know which bits are your key focus. Yeah. And everybody gets to share in the wind now, right? I think before you would have done your job to the best of your ability, but whether it succeeded or failed, you didn't feel like you owned that outcome. It was just like I did my bit and I handed my baton and, you know, too bad that other person running fell down. Oh, bad for them. Now you see the whole race. And so you see you get to our demand gen people or even some of our brand intent people now get to feel the success of the wind when we've either made the sale or helped a customer with a problem and support. You know, they get to see the longer picture. And so then they get to feel more of those wins that we collaboratively get together. Brilliant. That's excellent. And it's a really good model to understand and to learn from across different types of sectors and, and different types of organization as well, I think. Do you think that kind of approach works across all sectors and, not, and all business types? Or do you think it lends itself more naturally to some rather than others? No, I think it does lend to all types. I think how you create the pods would be different. So if you were maybe in a more complex multi-million dollar deal with, with specific named accounts, Maybe you would make pods based on the type of account versus either a geographic pod or a market segment. I think the key is to understand all the touch points in your customer journey, and they have to have some kind of things in common. You know, for us, it is a lot more geography. It's like we have all of our Southeast United States group work together, but that's because then they have the same set of customers, they have the same channel that's serving them, so they have a lot in common. In other instances, we might take a segment like maybe small, medium business, and we might give it a larger geography because there's a, enough similarities there. And so I think, I think it can apply to everywhere, but how you build your pod is unique. And remember that each of the pieces of the pod, whether it's your brand intent person, or your demand gen person, your inside sales rep, or your account rep, or your field sales rep, you can add any number that makes sense for that pod. So all of our pods do not have the exact same people. But what all of our pods have is they at least have all the components required. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think it's tailoring it to, or telling it to your end audience as well. So again, it's being geared up around the customer, but whether that's by geography or, or segment or, or sector or whatever the case may be, it's making sure that it's reflective of your target audience. Yeah. If your journeys were very different, then I don't think you could have that in the same pod because different journeys require different touch points with different reasoning. And so you have different successes. Great. Thank you. You also created, not as if you had a, enough to do with everything that you're doing with the restructure, but you also created the three centers of excellence. So one focused around data and analytics, one for customer insights and positioning, and one for creative and digital experience. So how do they work? alongside the pods and the other areas of facilitating the UCE. And can you tell us a little bit more about how each has helped the organization overall? 
Yeah, I would love to. And just for the purposes of everyone not thinking that everything was just honky-dory is two of these are going really well. One of them we're still quite working on. So I'll start with the two that have been quite successful and then I'll share with you some of our challenges in the, in the third one because I think it will be helpful to others. So our customers' insights and positioning, this was really great because we all have listening posts from many, many places. And I think many companies might be like ours is, is different segments of your company hear different listening posts, different inputs about the customer, uh, but they don't always share that with people outside. And so what we have at creating this kind of group outside is they took all the listening points together and we call them Project Heartbeat, which means they have to take all of the input They have to summarize into what's important to the company, maybe what's the biggest problems that we're going to tackle. And then they have to share that out throughout the whole company. And so this lovely kind of cycle going through the company that this group is fully responsible for, which is what are we hearing? What is changing in the market? What are our customers saying? How does that apply to our business? And then here's the three kind of messages that we're pumping out across the journey with all the right deviations based on market and segments and all of that stuff. But just having one group solely responsible for customer insight and sharing that insight is always the thing that I think organizations have the most trouble doing so that everybody has more information about the customers they go throughout their day and make decisions. The second one was really more about the creative And so this is just video and and branding and images and even taking our technical writing team and putting them with our website writers. It's a different type of writing. It's a different type of personality. Did, Did we get efficiencies from that? And we did. We did because at the end of the day, having the entire creative group together just created more synergy. So it might be, of course, your technical writer is not the same as your website page writer or your marketing writer, but having them in the same group they understand what each other is writing. And so there's much more consistency in how we talk, in our voice and how we talk to our customers, which is a super important, again, because remember, we're centered around having a single customer journey and what does our company represent to them. And so having more consistency in our creative elements just helps kind of fine tune that from a customer perspective. And then the third one is the one that I would say that we are are still working on, and that's our data and analytics. That's taking all of our MarTech stack, all of our sales up stack, all of our financial and and, uh, customer support information and putting that all together into a data and analytics team. And I will say that our processes changed faster than our systems could keep up with it. And current marketing and sales applications aren't made for as much coordination as we have. And so it's taking us much longer to get our systems enabled to our new processes than maybe we thought at the beginning. And it's forcing, which is in a good way, really coordinated data sets. And so that's also taking a lot more time than we probably planned for. And so I would say on our data side, we're not exactly where we want to be. We've come a long way from where we were, but we're still not quite at the full UCE experience from a data and application standpoint. I can imagine that's a mammoth task ahead and it's bringing data from all different areas of the business through all the different tech stacks that you have. And it's one of the number one challenges for any organization currently that technology and the the combination of the technology and how that's embedded throughout the organization is not necessarily keeping up with how fast the processes need to be or how quickly customer demand and behavior is changing. And so being able to map it all out, it changes as soon as you, you already have. So it's very much a fast moving and evolving process. And I can imagine something like that, given your 
level of connection and collaboration would be be a far greater task than you would find in, in many organisations. So uh, it sounds like you're well on your way with that. But I think with everything else that you've got set up, that will definitely sort of come in time. And the fact that all the other different elements are so coordinated and collaborative must give you a very firm foundation to be able to move towards that. I think, it, yeah, it, look, it, it's causing the right conversations, even if we don't have the right solutions just yet. It's like getting our HubSpot application, which is a marketing application, to work really, really well with our Salesforce data, to work really well with our customer success. That's a different application called Gainsight. And I think all organizations have the same problem of how do you share data between all of the systems, but also getting the applications to work in coordination is our next level challenge. So I'll just put that one out there. If you're looking to do this over, plan for more budget and data analytics because it, it'll become the glue that makes it all work uh, long term. Yeah, absolutely. Well, part of that future proofing and the future thinking as well, so it will come in time. But uh, yeah, you have to allow the budgets and the, and the resources for it because it can quite quickly take over. Some of the conversations we've had on previous podcast episodes have been around that, you know, those specific challenges. So something that's uh, shared across the board, but uh, I can imagine that would be quite the task for you and your team. So looking forward to hearing more about how that develops and grows over the coming years. I think I mean, you've given us a great overview and there's an awful lot to learn from all that you've shared with us. And, and thank you for being so candid and transparent with sharing your story. I think there's a lot that uh, different teams and, and different company types can learn from your story and the path that you've taken. I think there's so much to be excited about with having such strong levels of customer and employee engagement during a pandemic, during times of so much uncertainty, whether that's geopolitical or financial or across different markets. So it's, as we were saying earlier, it was a, a real kind of leap of faith in difficult times, but actually it's a way of of managing those in a more cohesive way, which I think is something that we can all learn a lot from. Where do you see this going over the next few years in terms of the continually evolving B2B buyer behavior, ways of working? Are there particular steps that you're taking now over and above what we've been discussing in terms of tech and data and analytics and, and insights for you to, to ensure the model continues to be as robust as, as possible for future proofing and making sure that it's fit for purpose for the next stage of growth and also for, for any other potential changes or restructuring that, that you may need to, to do as time goes on. Yeah, I mean, for sure, B2B is is changing. B2C has it, right? Over COVID, they, they understood the consumer wanted digital. They've got it. B2B has a, a lot more complexity. One, because you're not dealing with an individual consumer, you're dealing with a buying group. So how do we get better digitally to help support buying groups when people are looking for your product and on your website? How are you helping them share information with their stakeholders, I think is a key part of that. The other thing in B2B is, is how are we integrating channel and, and other partners into our buying experience digitally? Do we have great handoffs between the digital sites to help them go from maybe an investigative about product on our site into, a, hey, I want to purchase at a price quote uh, on their site. So how are we helping in those handoffs across companies uh, is really important. And then the, some of the data that's coming through in, in these complex buys is, you know, the traditional sales, you will bring them information. Well, you know, digitally, we don't have to do that. They can go out and find all their information now. So what do the buyers need from you? Well, they need assurance. 
They need to know, are they making the right decisions? Is there any information that they have missed? And then they need to know, like, how are they going to get approvals through their buying group? And so having the right level of assurance in a digital mode, uh, whoever can crack right level of assurance with buying group with different partners, that's B2B uh, digitally. And until that exists, we still have a little ways to go. Yeah. So it's that collaboration with with partners and the handholding for the customer for for the buyers. So just that that reassurance whether it's the product is what they're looking for, have they got the testimonials and that kind of the reviews and all of the I suppose like minded buyer information at their disposal. Yeah, it it is about the information. Yeah, because we we redid our website so that we had better information about who's there and what they're looking for, so that we could customize to the customer as much as we could. We redid our partner portal again to get the plumbing right so that we can get better handoffs and and so as we get better in our digital site with our digital information we're also looking at how do we share that in a b2b environment because at the end of the day it's not just our customer it's a mutual customer with our partner and so how do we extend the things that we're learning the things that we're doing with that's in privacy compliance that you know that doesn't holds the customer to the right level yet includes everybody involved in the buying journey of course, and that's something we've not even touched on that, that you've got regulatory parameters that, that you have to exist within as well. And, uh, and, you know, going above and beyond compliance. So that's another layer of complexity to, to add in. Well, if it was easy, everyone would do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been really fantastic. Thank you so much, Jenna. I've re- really enjoyed speaking with you. Fascinating and, uh, and very exciting story. I know you're talking about it uh, all over the globe at at the moment and and sharing your experiences. And it's, you know, we're really keen to to continue to to watch and and hear from you as you're you're learning along the way. And I hope we can collaborate on some some more content and and some more discussions around around the future of of B2B and, and what that will look like in the next few years and then longer term. Thank you so much. We, I appreciate the time that you're spending with us. And, you know, we're feeling quite good about it. Let's hope that these uh, kind of results continue. And we're happy to share both both uh, learnings and uh, successes and, uh, you know, maybe whatever blips in the road that come across. So thank you for your time, Rachel. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. Speak again soon.